Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rouge Rugby Podcast, focusing on real Canadian rugby. I'm Stu Hardy, joined, as always, by Derek Brissett. But this time, we have another special guest. We have a special interview to close out the season. It is currently, to my knowledge, the only person at the Toronto Arrows who's been able to lift the MLR shield and the current head coach for the Arrows, Peter Smith. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Stu. Thanks for having me, Derek. All right. So with all our interviews, we start off with a few questions about how you got into the game. So uh, what got you started in rugby in the first place? Um, well, I, I actually picked up the game pretty late by Australian standards. So I, I didn't start playing until I was 13. Um, I was okay. a soccer player up till then and... Uh, even though I played soccer, I played a lot of touch footy with my mates and, and they'd been trying to convince me for years to play rugby. And it wasn't until I got to high school um, and, and I watched the first 15 game and, and the whole school, parents, family, everyone you knew was there and, and the atmosphere was crazy. And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can to, to, to play for that team when I'm older. So, so I made the switch the following year and um, haven't looked back since. That's actually really kind of cool because it's like i feel like that's the way like most canadians get introduced to rugby is through like yeah. learning about it for the first time in high school so that's uh that's actually it's how although it sounds like it's much bigger in australia than it is here but uh like that's actually kind of cool that it's the you got a little bit of a somewhat similar story to i'm sure a lot of the canadian players on the arrows too no exactly exactly yeah i was i was uh through and through soccer player and i uh, didn't think much of it and uh picked it up late but um yeah here we are so when when you're first getting started in rugby then is there anybody like you know whether it's a coach or a friend or uh mm. teammates that kind of you kind of credit as like really being like the driving force and the influence uh you know st starting the uh the rugby career uh, honestly there were so many you know family friends school teachers it, it's hard to single out anyone because everyone was just so supportive i mean I know my dad wasn't the biggest fan of soccer, so I know he loved uh, when, when I finally made the switch to rugby because my two brothers were, were all already playing rugby at the time. But um, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't single out anyone. You know, I wasn't the most confident player, but, but my coaches, my teammates, my friends, they just instilled so much confidence in me and and uh, helped me along the way, uh, particularly when I was first starting out. Like, I, I couldn't tackle when I first started. I had no idea from a technique point of view how to tackle. And so my buddies, we basically just went to a, a friend's house when I was younger and just played tackle rugby in the front yard for as long as it took for me to, me to pick up. So um, yeah, just a combination of family, friends, school teachers. Um, everyone was just so supportive. And I think that's why I love rugby rugby so much and I stuck with it. All right. Well, that's always great, great to have a, such a supportive network behind you. So when you were growing up, or even now, who is someone that every time they step or stepped onto the pitch that you just love to watch them play? With the exception of the Arrows, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, grow, growing up, it was it was Stephen Larkin for sure. I mean, like he was the kind of player uh, you paid money to go see and, and he made it look so easy. And, and I still enjoy watching old replays of, of him for the Wallabies. And uh, 
uh, actually one time we were we were looking at recruiting a player uh, and, and one of his references was in fact Stephen Larkham. So I was able to actually touch base with him and, and just ask him a few questions about the player and, and Stephen ended up, he was at Munster at the time I think it was and he ended up just having a, a 30, 30, 45 minute chat with me uh he just he just was a great guy um and yeah no he he was he was the guy like he was he was a guy all those he's loved and uh that was back in our golden era where he he ran the show did you end up signing the player uh we put an offer to him um this was uh, i think this was a couple of years ago this was the uh maybe going into the 2020 season uh we put an offer out to him and he ended up getting uh getting a contract over in Japan. So so he uh, okay. he turned us down, unfortunately. Yeah. You still got to start, talk to a Larkin, yeah. though, so that's a, that's a win, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I told I told, I told told my buddies about it after, and, uh, like, <laughs> they were just in th- – because they, like, like me, they just absolutely loved him, so they were just uh, – they were very jealous that I got to spend 30 minutes on the phone with him. Well, you know, swings and roundabouts, I take it. Um, but anyway, not talking about um, – all these players going off to Japan. Let's talk about your career uh, to begin with. So um, you played for Northern Suburbs Rugby Club in your youth. Now, for those of us, which may also include uh, the hosts of this podcast, um, who are not fully experienced with the shoot shield, how did this competition unfold? I actually grew up, so so when I was younger, I played for, for my school um, and, and didn't play too much club rugby outside of outside of it because I went to a union school. So I actually I actually funnily enough grew up supporting rugby league as a lot of a lot yeah. of young Australians do. So I had no idea who who Northern Suburbs were up until the age of about eighteen years old. Um, and I, I don't actually know how that competition unfolded, but but it is a huge competition mm-hmm. in, in Sydney. And, and when I finished school, I had no idea how to pursue a career in, in union. And I was actually mm-hmm. ready to make the switch to rugby league. But I had a few union clubs contact me as I was graduating and, and ended up signing for Gordon. So I spent a couple of years playing, playing for Gordon um, and... Um, I think going into my third season there, I saw the writing on the wall a bit. Gordon had at the time their number 10, Dave Harvey, who was who was the best club player in the comp and went on to play Super Rugby. They'd signed Josh Keel, who who just returned from the Newcastle Falcons and also signed Mike Herkus, um, the USA fly half, who had just finished up in Japan. So I made my switch to North um, and made my shoot shield debut as a, as a 20-year-old, and that really launched my career from there. But uh, I think the shoot shield comp, it's one of, if not the best club competitions in the world. Uh, we recruit a lot from there, as do I know a lot of major league rugby teams do. And there's just so many players who are running around there who would love an opportunity up here. And, and you know, I know um, in North America with Major League Rugby that there's, you know, the, the salaries are low and there's a lot of frustration that, that they're still sort of entry-level salaries. But down there, there's so many guys earning 200 bucks a win and, and nothing if they if they lose who, who would do anything to get a full-time yeah. offer from, from up here. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really good competition. I know back in the days before Super Rugby, 
to those games, you get thousands and thousands of people packed into the local suburban grounds. And then Super Rugby came along and it, it kind of died out that competition a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But now there's a, a, a huge resurgence back at home. I, I watch a lot of Shoot Shield and I've been to a fair few games um, to, to, to have a look at some players and recruit some players. And, and the crowds are outstanding. I mean, when I played in it, what would it be now? Uh, a bit over a decade ago, there, there might be kind of 100 people at a game, but now most games there's there's a few thousand, uh, particularly to the local derby games, which is which is huge. So, I mean, uh, you look at Super Rugby in Australia and you see the crowds kind of dwindling, but but the club game is is as strong as, strong as ever back home. We're going to be talking about your pro uh, contracts in a moment, but something that was mentioned about the first pro contract you got is that your father is Welsh and... Um, you know, being born in Australia, having a Welsh father. Um, obviously, the Rugby World Cup came to Australia in 2003. Growing up, how much did you have to hate England? Uh, I still <laughs> do. We still do. Um, like, Dad was born in Wales but grew up in England, so he grew up in Exeter. Um, and oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think we supported any team that was going against England. Um, yes. Uh, and that's, that that applies to all sports, not just rugby. Cricket was a, yeah. cricket was a big one. Um, so... Uh, yeah, we we I, I mean we tried. I've tried to through dad. I've tried to get behind and, and support Wales, but I, I just can't not support Australia. But Wales are definitely the number two team in the household. I mean, the oh, last right. Rugby World Cup, we were all gathered around the TV in, in red jerseys watching watching some of the games. But whenever there's a conflict between Australia and Wales, Australia always win. Okay, all right. I I, I can understand that. I can I can respect that. Um, so, mentioning Wales, uh, the first professional contract you were approached with was a short-term deal with the Welsh um, regional club, the Ospreys, in 2011. So, how was it to travel halfway around the world for your first professional rugby contract? Yeah, it was a, it was a different experience, to be honest. I think to be in that environment and, and to train with that calibre of player was amazing. Uh, it was a huge learning curve for me, and, and I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would, if I'm being honest. Like, I was a... I had really high expectations for myself as a player. I was a huge warrior. Uh, I'd always worry about if I had a bad game or a bad session. And so when you train every day and and all of that, it, it's it's. Uh, I think looking back, you know, I I, I should have just been a twenty one year old and enjoy the moment and enjoy the experience. But I'm really grateful for to have that experience in such a quality club in, in such a, a great part of the world and. Um, you know, I think at the time I, I probably struggled a little bit to, to be so far from the comforts of home. But, um, yeah, it was it was a great learning experience for me purely from a rugby point of view and um, and, and did make me a better player and um, allowed me to experience, you know, really what it took to, to, to be at the to be at that sort of level. Yeah. And then, you know, after that, you kind of headed to to Japan um, for for a handful of years. And I guess like. You know, Japan's obviously been been a country that has kind of risen a lot on the world stage. And 
So like, what was it like playing in the, in the Japan top league? And, you know, how have you kind of like seen that sort of grow in the, the past few years as well? And I mean, obviously I know like there's been even a couple arrows, like uh, Sam Malcolm kind of went, uh, you know, a couple guys went over to Japan for a few years and uh, for a year or two, and then came back as well. It's like, how, how does like the, the experience in Japan and how does it maybe kind of helped you grow as a player? And do you see that similar growth in, in guy, other players that you know that have also headed over to Japan too. Yeah, I, I think when you touch on the growth of rugby in Japan and, and you look at their results um, of, of recent years, I think anyone who's been over there and experienced Japanese rugby, uh, it comes as no surprise to them. You know, I, I think my time there gave me a huge understanding of, of how to work hard. Like it, it's no surprise how, how they've climbed the world rankings. Like they would train for hours and then stay on the field and do extra for hours. And, and that's their mindset for years. Like from from the high school level, they would go to school all day and then train for till the night time and then go home and they do it all over again every single day. And then when they get to the university level, it's the same thing. Uh, they, they'd be doing two, three-hour sessions, four-hour sessions, and then do their extras and then go home. And so when they get to the professional level, they're just – the mindset of the players is, is so strong. You know, I've never once heard a Japanese player complain about a teammate, a coach, a training session and so on. They're, they're just so disciplined at their craft. Um, like I know, I remember being there and, and we trained like two and a half hours, three hours. And like our training sessions were, you know, we'd have a weight session where it's a leg day and, and you would go, you, you you pair up with a partner, you lift, your, you, you do your squats and your rest is when they go. So you go, they go, you go, they go and that's non-stop for an hour and you're just like gone by the end of it. Then you do a 5K run um, directly after and then you're out in the field training for two hours and doing contact. Um, and... And then you'd get off the field because you're just you're just done for the day, and you'd you'd shower up and you'd walk out of there and you walk to your car and you look back on the field and there's still like ten fifteen players doing the extras out on the field. Um, You look at some scrummaging sessions; they go a hundred plus scrums in a day, Um, and um, they we we would fly or another team would fly over and we just do a training session against them and they would scrum for an hour an hour and a half against each other now whether that's good or bad I, I don't <laughs> know but you do that for years and that's the mindset for years so it's it's no surprise how they've risen you know um, and the, the amount of work that they've done probably not the most gifted team when it comes to you know physicality or, or anything like that when you look at the profile of, of rugby of, of a Japanese rugby player but their skill level is outstanding the pace of the game over there is so quick and um, everything I think that they've they've earned everything that they've got as a national team and that's that's not just from the top 30 40 players in the country I mean the top league, or League One, as they call it, and the divisions below is just you, you just got that mindset of athlete where who's coming through, who just does everything they possibly can to be the best rugby uh, rugby player that they can be. Um, and I know they've risen a, a whole lot in the world rankings recently, and, and I would suspect that, that they continue to do so over the coming years. Um, and you draw similarities with the MLR. I think their professional competition started in was it 2003 or the early 2000s? And, and it's taken mm. probably 
I think, 15-plus years to, to see the results with the national team. And the hope is that um, something similar happens with the MLR by providing uh, providing the, the top players in the country exposure to, to a higher-level game, and, and hopefully that, that we'll, we'll see the results uh, come in, in in several years' time with that. I know I know short term USA and Canada haven't qualified, but but the, the hope is certainly long term that that uh, there are lots uh, our national teams are a whole lot stronger in the future. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's kind of what, what we're all hoping for. I mean, I think we had a we had an episode a few weeks back talking about just how how long some of the other leagues kind of have taken um, to really feel the impact on the national teams level, not just in rugby but other sports as well. Um, but I guess like going back to the, like, kind of like the training that they did in Japan is like, how is that difficult to get used to if you're a player coming from, you know, say a different part of the world? Yeah. So, um, I actually spoke, speak about this with, with the foreigners back, back, um, um, back when I was playing there. And, um, I, I, at the time when I signed for, it was Coca-Cola. Um, I, I just, you know, they offered me a contract and um, I was pretty happy with it. So I took it. Um, there's been these days that there are more foreign coaches and more of a foreign influence um, in that competition. Mm-hmm. So so these days, if, if you've got a foreign coach, you, your sessions are pretty much, you know, limited to an hour. Um, it's not the, it's not the, you know, heavy two, three hour sessions that that, oh, that okay. we might have been used to a few years ago. Um, but I, I do know talking talking to some foreigners there that that obviously try to when they're picking their team that they're gonna play or when they've got a few offers, they they kind of work out who's the coach and um what what the training structures are, are kind of like. But um yeah, I have heard I've heard before me like sessions with they 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 were used to being long sessions, long days, but um now with the amount of foreign coaches over there that certainly certainly scaled scaled back a fair bit. But uh, I do know at university level and, and high school level it's still still a crazy amount of uh crazy amount of training. And look, they wouldn't have it any other way. Um, right. To be honest, the, the the Japanese players absolutely love that. They love being out on the field, and they love you know doing everything they can to 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 play rugby and, and play at the best level that they can. Yeah. While you were with uh, Coca Cola, because um, you did two seasons with them, is that correct? I did the once. No, I did one season with Coca. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, yep. Was that the season that ended with Coca Cola being promoted, or? their first season back into um... no that that ended up that ended up with us being promoted so when i had signed for them they were in the top league um but then they okay. finished um i think they finished last or second last in in that competition so when i got there we played in um what was division one or the top the top challenge or you play division one and when you win that you go into the top challenge series for for promotion the next year so we ended up winning that competition mm-hmm. and getting promoted the following year Okay, so yep. obviously um, MLR doesn't have any um, promotion aspect or in it at the time. Um, so to go into a league in which I guess like they're saying that obviously they want to get back into the top flight, back into um, the top league uh, competition, how big of a celebration was it when uh, – Coca-Cola finally um, secured promotion for next season, or was it a competition format like um, we see in like the English uh, Championship, where it's a um, like round robin elimination and then the final game, and whoever wins that gets promoted. 
Oh, I it, it was so long ago I forgot because I know they've changed their rules so much over the past few years. But I think the winner of the top top challenge automatically goes through, um, oh, and okay. then second, third place they would play a one off game with like the the fourteenth place and thirteenth place of the top league to see. Um, and if they win that, they're through. And if they don't, then they've got to remain in Division Two. Um, okay. uh, the following year, so I know it's different now, and they've they've got a completely different structure. But back then, it was uh, yeah, I think that the bottom team of top league automatically got relegated. That the the winner of the top challenge automatically went up, and then there was still a second chance for a, a whole bunch of other teams to get through. Um, but yeah, that was the expectation. I mean, I think that was the first time Coca Cola has been demoted and, and down to division mm. two so um the expectation was was we go straight back up and uh, if that didn't happen i'm pretty sure they're, they're pretty ruthless over there i'm pretty yeah. sure they would have cleaned house and, and and got a whole new squad in the following year i've got a couple other questions about your playing career most notably you played in the arena football league <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that was um yeah that was an experience in itself hey yeah, I was just gonna say, like, what, what's what was the Arena Football League like? So, and also, how did you end up in the Arena Football League? Yeah, so to rewind a little bit, so when I played for Kubota, so my last season in Japan, um, had a had a few concussions, and, and I was told, look, you've got to look at thinking about something else uh, to do with your life, but but you should certainly take twelve months off. So, as part of my rugby training, I'd work with an, an American football kicking and punting coach to just to help my kicking technique um and i basically told him look i'm not i'm not going to play rugby anymore but i'm interested in i, I still i was still competitive I, I didn't see that as the end of my rugby career but i knew i had to do something for 12 months or or a little bit more so i went to him i'm like i'm, I'm very interested in going over and playing american football if, if there's any opportunity for me um and so we worked at it. Um, we, we got a bit of film. He did my recruiting for me in terms of um, in terms of college football. Um, and because I'd been to university before and already graduated, I only had like a semester of, of Division Two eligibility because uh, Division mm-hmm. One D two eligibility are a little bit different. So I had a semester or a year of Division Two eligibility. So I went over and got a scholarship to the University of Central Missouri, which was. Amazing. Like we 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 were in a twenty thousand person town and, and ten thousand people came to the game. So it was it was it was really <laughs> cool to be yeah. to nice. be in that environment. Um and then my 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 after that season I had no more eligibility, obviously. So um I, I got picked up to go to training camp um, in one of the arena leagues. And so I, I tried out, I got to the last day of cuts. They knock on my hotel door and said, sorry, we've gone in a different direction. So um, basically I had to pack my bags and 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 work out what am I going to do with my life? Um, I've, I've come up over here to, to pursue football and now I, I have no idea what I'm doing. But I ended up, um, I ended up getting picked up by, by a different team um, and played a couple of se- a couple of games um, for them. And it was, I mean, you're in a little stadium, a little indoor stadium. So it's loud. Um, it's, 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 it, it's pretty cool for, for someone who kind of knew the rules, but didn't really know the rules. I, I, um, I, I had to learn a lot as you go, but the expectations for a kicker over there, I mean, rugby, you know how you got to kick from the sideline and no one really expects you to make it or like if you miss over there like you've got coaches chewing chewing your ass off basically so <laughs> it was an aw- it was an awesome experience and and I 
my understanding of American football was like I knew who like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, all these guys were. So I didn't know who like the, the next caliber of people were. And the arena leagues are basically a bunch of guys who are trying to get filmed to go to that next level. So um, we get into training camp and people will be telling me, oh, that guy just got cut from this team. That guy just got cut from this team. He used to be with the Jets. He used to be with the the Dolphins, yada, yada, yada. And then um, it was very, very ruthless, I found. Like we'd come in one day and there's X amount of people. And then we come in the next day and half those people are gone and replaced by another bunch of bunch of people um so yeah it was it, it, it was definitely a different mindset um and the players there i mean that 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 was you'd have a chat with a few of them and very few people did it for fun like that was their way of getting their family uh the arena football league's just a stepping stone to try to get to the nfl so that was their way yeah. of getting their family out of poverty whatever their, their their situation was and to make the nfl and you talk to some guys and you're like what what, what are your interests you know outside of football and and it was no oh, this is this is i'm gonna make the nfl like and and they basically poured everything into into their sport and i, I just thought that was that was so uh, it was such a cool experience to be around that sort of environment and be around people who was basically all or nothing like when you when you look at rugby and uh, rugby's tip like most rugby players have, have got a decent background university background that sort of thing and they're playing rugby especially in north america you're playing rugby for for fun but you could be you could be doing something else with your life and earning a lot more money and and it was the complete opposite for this group of guys like they were that was their way of of supporting their families financially and um yeah, it was really cool to be around that mindset and uh, really cool to be in such a ruthless environment where if you didn't perform, you were gone the next day. And if you did perform, well, it, it guarantees you a, a, an extra day or an extra week in, in, in the environment. Yeah, I was just saying, like, what what were, like, so I guess, like, you played it for uh, for a few, a uh, couple of teams, a couple of years. How long were you in the league for? Like, in, as you said, it's pretty ruthless environment uh, how yeah, like I was in and out. So I went to training camp in 2016, um, got cut at the end of training camp, and I, I didn't get invited back to another team till 2017. So I went to training camp with the team in 2017, got cut from that team, got picked up by another team and, and played a couple of games there. So in the middle of all of that, I had to be like, what do I do? Um, and so that's how I joined the Chicago Griffins because they offered me a place to stay and some rugby. So I, I I played rugby to purely support my pursuit of American football. Um, so I was playing rugby, but there might have been a couple of games I missed because I had to attend a, a tryout or, or this, that or the other because, um, you know, teams will call you and say, like, are you available this week? Can you come in and, and work out tomorrow and that sort of thing? So that, that's how I ended up playing club rugby over in chicago to be honest and so obviously i guess is that that's your first introduction to uh rugby in north america was uh playing for the griffins while kind of maybe trying to balance a arena football yeah yeah that was it that was it um and uh, absolutely loved it um such a great group of great group of guys um at, at any club you go to in north america um and um 
Yeah, I, I spent a few seasons there playing for Chicago and, yeah, really, really enjoyed it and, and decent rugby. And this was before the MLR too. So you have mm. some pretty good players running around club rugby. It's just there's it, it's so big and there's so many clubs that you, it, the MLR had to happen to get the best players around the country in the one competition playing against each other. Yeah, I agree. Um, the MLR definitely did have to happen, and uh, you were part of the Seattle SeaWolves in the first uh, first year of MLR, where they won the title, the Shield. Um, so, what was that experience like? Being not only playing for um, the the MLR in its like you know at the beginning, but um, also like you know the team and the, the run that you guys had um, on route to the uh, the Shield for the first time. Yeah, um, I, I signed the contract back in, so it was the 2018 season, so I signed the contract back in 2017 and I honestly felt like the competition wouldn't go ahead. It was all a bit unknown <laughs> at, at that point in time. As a football player, I, I signed to play a couple of years before. I signed to play in a startup <laughs> league that never got off the ground after two years. So as a football player, I more or less trained for two years for, for, for nothing, essentially. Yeah. So going into this, I was really wary that whether it would or wouldn't go ahead. And it, even as we got into preseason, you know, everyone, all the teams, the league was still working it out in terms of, you know, facilities, you know, coaches, this, that or the other. So um, we got into preseason and there was always a bit of chat about like, you know, is this going ahead? Is this not going ahead? But then round one came and the fans showed up and the competition was great and, and you knew that the comp was was here to stay and lifting the shield with them was, was an amazing experience. And, you know, Glendale were the favourites all year. They've beaten us twice um, during the regular season. And as a team, we just we just had a great group of guys. We were so calm and confident going into the game. And I think we showed up to captain's run. They had, they had the final at a neutral venue back then. Yeah. So the final was in San Diego and we showed up to captain's run the day before. We didn't have balls um, or we didn't have balls for like 45 minutes. So we just started playing touch footy with someone's shoe. Um, but um, a gr- great, 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 great experience, um, to, to be honest, and, and great group of lads. And I'm still in touch with a lot of them and, and we still reminisce over over that season. And it's it, playing in that comp and now coaching that comp, it, it's 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 crazy to think how much the level has improved over yeah. over the last five years and, and and is continuing to improve as well. Um, like like back then, we trained like eight thirty at night. Uh, we we did our gym in the day, and that was only just the the full time guys. Uh, and our gym sessions were in a public public gym essentially and we'd do a skill session on a basketball court then we'd have our team session we'd have to wait for like under 10 11 12 soccer to get off the field so that us as the professional team can go train on it and now the transition with all the teams basically is is we run a daytime schedule everyone's full time and um it's a lot more professional now than what it was back then but um um yeah, crazy experience, but uh, it, it had to happen um, for, for for rugby in North America, and really glad it, it has. And uh, all the teams have basically moved to to more or less fully professional, which has been which has been great for for rugby in the USA and, and in Canada. Have Absolutely. you thought about incorporating the shoe touch rugby into Arrow's practices yet? Um, well, depending on uh, depending on kit arrival, sometimes that gets delayed in customs. <laughs> um, so maybe we we might have to, you know, talk, ask me after the first week of January, see where we're at. But uh, <laughs> see where we're at if the uh, boss showed up. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it eliminate it, it eliminates kicking. That's for sure. Yeah, I was gonna say, is it a punishment for the last player who's ready to get ready for training? It's like, don't put your shoes on just yet. Just give us one of them, and uh, that'll be the ball for the first session. Oh, definitely, definitely. We we had a few Fijian players in the team anyway who who loved running around in bare feet. So, um, <laughs> so I think it was I think it was Billy I think it was Billy uh, Toletau who who offered up his shoe and 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 we played with his shoe. Right, that's fantastic. To hear. That, that so, actually genuinely sounds like a thing that he would do. Yeah. I have, yeah. I've never met him, but just based on his persona publicly, that seems like very much like a thing he would do. Persona, what you see is what you get. Probably the nicest, nicest person in the league. Um, and I know he's not not playing it anymore, but uh, yeah, definitely the nicest person in the league. Oh, that's just great to hear. Uh, obviously, after the uh, 2018 season, you um, retired on health grounds due to concussion. But when did the decision um arise that you wanted to go into rugby coaching following your playing career was it you know shortly after or was it something you'd always had like in the back of your mind of what you can do once you had to call time yeah i um i knew from the age of 18 probably um as soon as i left high school i went back and 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 coached at my high school and I got more out right. of out of the game as a, as a coach and a player, and I enjoyed the game so much more as a coach and a player. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, look, I, I love the game, but as a player, I was always stressed out about my own performance and, and this, that, or the other. And I always felt as a coach, being able to help players um, through that um, was something I was probably better at than, than being able to perform week in, week out in, in high-performance uh high-performance environments, I guess you could say. I, I never specifically pegged coaching as something that I wanted to do full-time um, since I left my career. I, I knew I always wanted to coach since finishing up rugby, but but I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it full-time or not. And I felt at the time it was just an easier transition out of the game. Look, my whole life has been sports, competing, waking up, doing a, the same routine every single day, and that's what gave my life direction and meaning. Um and to lose that and go into something else completely different, I probably wasn't ready for. Um, so I decided to go into coaching for, for that reason as an easier transition out of the game and, and, and absolutely, absolutely loved it. I mean, I know it's a ruthless environment and, and I know I've got a young family now and, you know, a few bad, bad games um, and, you know, you're looking, looking for another line of work. But at this point in time, you know, I, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing and, um yeah. Um, so, so to answer your question, I, I I knew I wanted to do it for a long time. I saw it as an easy transition out of the game, and didn't probably didn't realize I love it as much as as I would. So here we are. How did you end up with the Toronto Arrows? Good question. Um, so I, I was so Maya. Um, she's from Chicago. Um, she she's she's my wife. She's from Chicago. She we, during the Seattle season, she we were going back and forth, and it, it was a little bit more um, difficult in our relationship. So so I, I was talking to the Toronto Arrows um, about potentially. Um, playing there just because Toronto was the closest um, city to Chicago yeah. and it would have made you know my our, our relationship a whole lot easier um, and so I decided at the end of the season uh, that I was going to retire um, but um, I, I told I was talking to Mark at the time who, who, who 
who was amazing and, and took a shot on me. I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire, but I'm interested in getting into coaching uh, if you've got any opportunities. And and he he brought me on and, and gave me an opportunity in Toronto. And, uh, um, yeah, that, that's that's basically how I, how, I, how I got up here. And um, as I said, Maya's from Chicago. It was a whole lot easier on our relationship for her to go back and forth with her work because it's only, only an hour flight away. And then... With COVID, everything turned more or less remote, which which made things uh made things even easier. So that that's how I got up here. But I guess I, I'm going into my fifth year now, and and the reason I've stayed so long are, are just the people up here. You know, like everyone, whether they're still involved or or not, just loved rugby and, and cared so much for it. And it was just such a great environment to work in. And, and everyone makes you feel so welcome and, and part of the family, and always has time for you. And and made sure that, you know, as a new person to a city, you, you looked after and, and management's been great. The coaching staff's been great. The players have been great. And um, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm happily going into my fifth year now just because the, the club's surrounded itself with great people. I feel like when I, I talk to a lot of the people that are associated with the uh, the Toronto Arrows, they kind of um, echo a lot of the same things that you just said, talking about, like, you know, how great the environment is. Um, as like you're the head coach uh, of this team, so like, what does the arrows culture mean to you, and how would you describe it? And like, what kind of what makes it, I guess, such a what it seems like such a great team to be a part of? I think we, I, I think we were lucky enough to to, to come through as the interior blues, so we already had a tight group of boys coming from there, and and. When I first came on to coach here, I remember a few players saying, hey, you can room us with anyone and we would enjoy it because we, we genuinely love everyone's company here. Um, and I've never been, a, 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 and that was genuine, and I've never been part of a team where everyone genuinely got along really well with with whether it's you know staff, players, that sort of thing. And so I think what we've got here is just a group of great people uh, who, who love rugby, who love working hard, who want the best for the team. But but I think we just have really, really good people involved within our team and within our squad uh, who want to push everyone and make everyone better. And I think that's the basis. I think that's, that's the foundation of, of what we've built here. It's just a bunch of great people who work hard uh, and who look after each other and care about each other. And I think that's reflected in our performance too. I mean, you see the guys put their body on the line and they do that for they do that for each other. They do that for the fans. They do that for the family. And um, and I think you know when you look at when you look at our, our, our results from last year or the way we played from last year. And I know some games were, were obviously better than others, but for the most part, it was just a bunch of guys who were, who were playing for their team, playing for each other, playing for their city, and, and that's all you can really ask of, of, of them at the end of the day. Yeah, obviously, you're saying in 2020, COVID hit and started working remotely. 2021, you know, we're talking about obviously being close to your now wife in Chicago. And then in 2021, you have to say, by the way, I now have to move so however many hours south to go to Atlanta airport because we'll be playing in Atlanta for that season. Um, obviously, from what we've heard from like players and staff members, it was seems like it was a very uh, difficult and mentally draining season down in Atlanta. Um, can you share some of the difficulties and experiences that you took from the two COVID seasons, for lack of a better term? 
I think you've spoken to everyone except me because everyone <laughs> talks bad of our time down in Atlanta, and I, 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 I liked it. Um, honestly, most people in the world work, work jobs they hate so they can earn a living to pay their bills, buy their food, and, and have a roof over their head. And I got to do what I love, and my accommodation was covered, and I was fed, and, and there were no complaints from, from my end. I think that season showed me the importance of, of mindset and, and it was the same situation for one player compared to another player and, and I know it was challenging and, and I, 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 I'll, 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 I'll say that with a grain of salt because I, I was lucky in terms of my partner was in America. She didn't have to cross the border so I was yeah. able to see her a little bit more than, than, than other families obviously and I, I roomed with Aaron Carpenter too who had to, uh, had to um, FaceTime his family Um at the end of every day, and, and I, that would have been incredibly hard for him as, as as well as a bunch of other staff members, a bunch of other players. But I think that season showed me the importance of mindset and regardless of the situation or circumstance, the one thing you can control is, is your mindset and your outlook on it. And, and with the right mindset, I, I think teams, people, individuals can, can achieve a lot of great things in, in their life. And so... Um, and so taking some of the learnings from from that year, um, it, it was hard being in a bubble. Um, I, I know it was really hard for, for some of the players being in the bubble. I know it was really hard for some of the players to only see the same people for, for a certain amount of time. Um, and, and so one of the challenges was obviously looking after um, the mental health of the players, maybe having to peel back on the rugby side of things to make sure that there's something else um, going on, um, but but also having the balance to know when you've got to push from the rugby side of things too because at the end of the day, we're down there as a rugby team and, and, and we're down there to perform and we're down there to win games. So it, it's always it, it's always a, it's always going to be a tricky balance when, when you're in one spot, be it a hotel or, or whatever it is, and, and there's not much of an outlet for a lot of people in the squad beyond just, just your rugby. Like I know being down there and I say I like it because I, I love what I do and not, you basically had 24-7 access to the players and, yeah. and all of that but you know you'd, you'd, you'd have a tough selection conversation with someone and then you'd be in the elevator with them a couple hours later and it's it, it, it's not ideal for – players need to get away from rugby um, at, at various times and, and it obviously wasn't ideal for them unfortunately but, um, but I, I think all in all, that season made us a whole lot tougher and a yeah. whole lot more resilient. And and everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? And you can look back on that season and think, well, you know, it wasn't. We were five and thirteen, I think it was. But at the end of the day, to go five and thirteen, if it makes, um, if it makes individuals, you know, more resilient to, to things like that, if it makes them tougher, if it makes them think, you know, what I can. That was a tough time in my life, and, and I know I can get through similar times in the future if, if, if they present itself. Well, then um, everything's a learning experience, isn't it? And and mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, I think, you know, looking back on it, we're, we're a tougher team, we're a more resilient team as a result. And whilst it was challenging, um, you, you certainly got to look at the positives and, and uh, the positives on, on everything that's happened in the past. Um, one of the big challenges that came from 2021, uh, especially for the Arrows, was the MLR season was announced as running between March and August because 
I mean, in all fairness, no one knew if there was going to be an international season in 2021. Then it's announced that Canada and the USA are playing games in Europe and it fall like slap bang within like the second half of the season and players need to be uh, taken away. And obviously because there's so many Canadian players on the arrows that leaves like, I guess like half your squad is suddenly unavailable for three or four weeks. Um, So when it came to bringing in new names and the return of some familiar faces, such as Sam Malcolm, um, how was it for them to come into this now bubble environment and play in Atlanta? I think it was, I think it was really good for the squad to be honest, um, because you just got new faces. I mean, you had uh, a group of guys who had to deal with the same group of people for however many months. And then all of a sudden you got new faces, new people to talk to uh, and people coming in with, with a fresh perspective on things and, and, and people coming in knowing that, you know, they're only going to be there three, four weeks or whatever it was. So they know they can just give a hundred percent of, of their time um, for, for those handful of weeks. Uh, I, I think it was really good for us because um, it gave us a little bit, of as the season was sort of dwindling down and we were out of playoff contention and we're losing a handful of our best players well then we got the opportunity to to have new faces in uh, and a different perspective on things and, and have a look at a, a few players for the future too so I think it kind of helped us through those last two three weeks of the season if if, if I'm being honest and uh it gave um it, it kind of rejuvenated the squad a little bit too so yeah so following um that season and going into the 2022 season you were named head coach um became the youngest head coach in uh, MLR's history so far um 2022 season was uh you, like Obviously, great to uh, be back. Oh, great for us as fans that live in Toronto to have you guys back home. Um, but as you know, he had some great wins, a couple tough losses, um, had to deal with a very wild situation, injury situation with Scrum Half. Um, how do you look back on your first season as head coach? And uh, like, what was that experience like taking the, uh, the, the reins of a professional rugby team for the first time? Yeah, it, it was a tough one, to be honest. I think we underachieved so much as a team. Uh, when you look at our roster and you look at the quality of players on our roster and uh, unfortunately a fair few of them were out injured for, for much of the season. But mm-hmm. I, th- I certainly thought we, we had the capacity to go further. Um, knowing it was my first year as head coach, you know, you always feel like you're ready and then then you come into it and there's just so much... Uh, so much you didn't know and and it was a great learning experience for me and and I think certainly equipped me better to handle going into next season. I I didn't want to try to reinvent the wheel or or too much coming in or or, or change too many things. I I think that season, you know, gave us a good gauge of of where we were and and what we needed to do to be successful in future years. I I think with the support of of our management and, and just our group as, as a whole, I think we've been able to learn from from the past and, and be in a position to set this team up really well to be successful in the future. So with um, the 2023 season, uh, well, pre-season uh, camp is only a few weeks away. Um, and, you know, the hours have already announced um, some, name, some new names that are coming into the squad, a lot of... Um, fellow Australians coming in, some of them with Canadian eligibility as well. 
um, some departures. But when it comes to making those uh, decisions of player selection, um, I think uh, the first new signing that was announced, the hours even uh, had a cell, had a photo with uh, you and the new player um, there. Um, when you're looking for these players, obviously Canadian eligibility is a big thing because that helps with visas and things like that. But is there any particular quality that you're looking for in these players? And is it like a missing puzzle piece that you have in your mind of like this player can fit in and then we have the ideal team for the new season? It, it's usually a, a missing puzzle piece um, a little bit. Like we, we want to a well-rounded squad and to be strong in, in various areas and have different types of players um, in different types of positions to to allow us to maybe change up the game plan depending on on who we're who we're coming in and playing against. But but anyone we bring in, um, I think you're referring to Nick uh, Nick Ben down uh, down from Manly yeah. uh, in Australia when, when when we caught up. Like we we we'd meet everyone whether it's on Zoom or in person just to make sure that. They're of the mindset um, that we want out of a player. They're hungry. They're coming in ready to go, ready to learn, um, and and they're going to fit a squad. I mean, I, I know we we spoke about our, our culture before, and, and and one of our big prerogatives is to make sure we don't bring in anyone who, who's going to be detrimental um, to our culture or our team. Um, and so, look, we'll, we'll look at various things. We'll, we'll obviously, the, number one is is their playing ability um, and, and whether they can suit the style of game that we want to play or provide us with a point of difference within our squad. And, and, and if they can, then we'll obviously dig in on their personality and, and what their future aspirations are. I, I, I know we always ask players who come in, you know, what what is it you want to achieve with your rugby career? And if it's if it's to come over here and just relax, then it's probably not the place for you. But but if, if, the ML, if they want to use the MLR as a stepping stone to to go elsewhere in their career, whether it's a big contract somewhere else, I, I think this is a place for them because um, it, like anyone that we've brought in in the past or, or we're bringing in in the future, um, we want a squad who are, who are coming in, who are willing to work hard, who are hungry to, to get better as rugby players. And I think that is, that's the most optimal um, way you can, you can, you can, you can build a squad. I am curious kind of, I guess, about one element of, um, I guess, arrows recruiting. Cause I know, mm. I know it was a thing that even like Kingsley Jones touched on a few months back uh, with regards to the national team, but um you know, and you obviously we talked about the shoot shield earlier this year, and you brought in, uh, as you said, uh, Nick Ben, Will Grant, uh, Connor Grindall, a handful of guys, and also um, Fabian Goodall. Who, but a uh, Grindall, Grant, Ben, like those are guys that have Canadian eligibility as well, which, um, mm-hmm. as Stu, I think alluded to, kind of helps um, with MLR because one, they're considered domestic players, so you don't burn those international slots as well. Um, but like, how do you guys go about finding? out if guys have that Canadian eligibility um like how difficult of a process is that because you know versus maybe like do you like showing up to a shoot shield game seeing the roster seeing that the guy's born in Australia like how do these how do the conversations happen so that you maybe get alerted to the fact that there's some Canadian eligible players playing in leagues around the world yeah it's it's always a tough one because you know there's a lot who, who either don't know but they're eligible or, or have been undiscovered um 
I think in the cases of those three, they were put forward to us. I think one by an agent and 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 two by yeah, whether it was family or, or friends or connections or, or something like that. Connor and Nick were actually put forward to us a few years ago. So we've been watching them and tracking them for probably the past three seasons. Um, okay. And they've always been on our radar. And, and when we felt like they were at that level and, and ready to come up here, then, then we knew we were going to give them a shot. Um, and then Will, Will was put in touch with us this year. And just with his background, we knew he was a guy that we wanted to take a chance on and, and bring up here. So it, it's it, finding those players is hard um, and we are reliant on, on players reaching out to us, whether it's directly or, or through their agents. But uh, it's a very difficult process to be able to find Canadian eligible players elsewhere in the world. But I know it's something that that we're working on with, with the Director of Player Development as well as uh, Rugby Canada is working on as well, just to make sure uh, we have... Um, we, we keep track of, you know, all, all the potential players around the world who are available to us uh, in, in case we need them or in case there's there's an opportunity to come up here and play. Just to go back to the um, 2022 season, obviously, mm. um, we mentioned before the a string of bad luck with um, getting, I think it was like eight scrum halves signed over the season to cover the position because it seemed as soon as one player was fit, they'd come on. And then something would happen. I think it was even um, one game you had to have Sam Malcolm double as a scrum half to go it. Um, so two things. One, how do you then search for that emergency cover for those kind of positions? And have you brought in an exorcist just to make sure that any curse that's placed on the team last season has now been firmly removed and we're all going to be okay for 2023? There is talk of retiring the number nine jersey because it may be cursed. Um, <laughs> just have a number twenty-one and maybe number twenty-four out there, but uh, we'll, we'll see. It was a crazy, crazy one, wasn't it? We we were lucky enough to have three players come out of retirement in Jamie McKenzie, Riley Donado, and and Gordy uh, McGrory um, to, to help us through to help us through that time. Um, but uh, in, in terms of, so obviously with the Pacific Pride, um, there, there are a group of players on, on our depth chart who aren't with our senior squad. We've got the Pacific Pride out there. We've got our academy as well. Um, and, and we do have um, a handful of quality players running around in club rugby too, who we know if we do suffer certain injuries in certain positions, we, we know who the next guy up or, or the guy after that or the guy after that is going to be. Um, so I think... You know, we're, we're now that club rugby is back in Toronto. I know we had those COVID years. Now that uh, now that everything's sort of up and running again, um, now there are academies academies um, more or less professionalised um, as well. Um, I think we're if we are to get in sort of some injury trouble next year, we're we're in a much better place to be able to. Um, to be able to bring guys up into into the fold and into the senior squad. One of the other things I really wanted to ask you too with uh, you had a couple players and James O'Neill, Mitch Richardson have gone over to play for Melrose um, during um, this past season. It's like how has that been going for you? And like how does do you find like how, that's benefiting the the Toronto Arrows by like building these partnerships and having guys like O'Neill and Richardson playing overseas uh, um, during the MLR off season. Uh, similarly, yeah, so, Adrian Wadden is oh, yeah, um, playing in uh, Hong Kong 
at the moment. And this partnership of Arrows players going overseas. Um, can fan, on top of what uh, Derek just said, can fans expect um, players from either Melrose or Hong Kong to be coming over on like a part-time basis in the 2023 season? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tackle I'll tackle your question there, Stu. We we probably wouldn't at, at this stage expect any Melrose players or, or Hong Kong players um, coming up to us just because we're so limited in terms of our, our squad size and, 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 and salary cap and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, so it, it's hard for us to provide some of those op- opportunities um, to those players, although it, it is something that we certainly do look at uh, when, when, when whether it's the Hong Kong Rugby Union or um, or Melrose put forward players for us to consider. Um, but, you know, for us... It's such a short season in terms of six months. When you look at other other competitions around the world, you know they're, they're going on 10, 10 months or so, or they have mm. they say Super Rugby. You've got your Super Rugby, but then you're playing in the NPC in the off season. Our mm. challenge is trying to get guys as much game time as possible, um, so that they're able to improve over the course of a year, um, rather than just six months with us and then and then doing nothing um, nothing for the uh, for, for the majority of the off season. I, I think. It's a wider problem in the country too. When you look at you look at the Ontario universities, for example, they only play a handful of games in the year, mm-hmm. and then and then the season's done. And so, to get these guys developed and up to the level that that we'd like them to be, and and to really hit their reach their potential, they've just got to be playing. You can do as much training as you want in the world, but. But the more you play games, uh, the better you're going to be. And so our, our ability to provide James and Mitch um, opportunities in, in, in Scotland and, and Adrian opportunities in Hong Kong, I know they're going to come back to us much better players. And, and our challenge is to be able to do that with hopefully more players the following season. And, and I think we're going to see uh, a knock-on effect uh, in future years um, in terms of the development of of, of our guys, um, particularly the guys that don't make the national team. I know the national team had had a pretty pretty heavy heavy off season for us, but a heavy season just in terms of their, their training load and all of that. But we we want to make sure that the guys not involved in that or or, or uh, the, sorry the guys not involved in that are getting as much rugby and, and rugby development in as possible whilst also giving them the opportunity to to experience something else a different environment different culture and and, and be able to travel the world yeah and i guess uh, to maybe kind of wrap up a little bit of our off season chat here uh, you know, what are the expectations for this team going into the uh, 2023 season Good question. We want um, we we obviously set our expectations pretty high. I think with the squad that we've built and um, everything that's been done off the field to get this team geared up um, and ready to compete next year, we've we've set our expectations very high going into the season. But I want this to be a team that Canadians are proud to support, uh, that young players all around the country aspire to play for in the future. I know just talking with our owner Bill Webb, he. He has lots of parents, kids coming up saying, how do I become a Toronto Arrow? And so, yeah, I, I, I know uh, particularly particularly in my time being up here, I know the results for the national team haven't really gone gone the way we had hoped. And, and there's, I always hate to, to, to see or read a lot of flack that gets thrown their way. And I, I just want to make sure that, you know, we do the best we can to... to 
to make this uh, make this a team that that Canadians are proud to, to get behind and, and support, and that you know it's it's a team that whether it's young kids, university kids, you you want to aspire to be part of this team and, and play for the Arrows. Besides lifting the shield as a coach, because you've already done it as a player, what are your hopes for your tenure with the Toronto Arrows? Yeah, I think I think I touched on it a little bit before. I just want this to be a team that Canadians are proud to support and that young players aspire to in the future. And with that, obviously, comes results and, and people get behind teams that are winning. And so we know a big focus for us going into next year is, is to get the results on the board and, and win games of rugby and really go as far as we, we can go. And um, uh, I think if we're able to do that, um, you know, the fans will show up, they'll get behind this team and, and it, it, it would really feel like, you know, Canada's team in, in the MLR. That's good. And uh, we know that in 2031, the rugby, the men's rugby World Cup will be coming to the United States. So from a position of looking as the league as a whole, as a head coach, what are your hopes that you want to see from Major League Rugby between now and 2031? It's a good question. I think, look, the level of competition has has, has, has gone up dramatically year on year. Um, I think the amount of foreign spots in the league has to go down. Um, you, you look at Japan, other countries, and and they're varied between you know two and four foreigners on the field at any one time, and and you see the results that that's had with with their own national teams. We've got ten in our league, and and look, some teams are going into the into the league next year with with twelve foreign spots, and you know my question would be how how are we developing the spine of international teams that way when you've got foreign you, you, you know the type of players you, you got to recruit from from a foreign perspective but but how do the domestic players get get developed in that sort of way and it's such a short season too that it, it develop the development window is very very hard because you have such a short pre-season you're already into the season and then everything uh you know you've got to win games you've got to sell tickets everything becomes about winning uh winning from that so i think the amount of foreign spots has to go down uh, and we've got to promote more domestic players and more homegrown players and i think there's got to be a competition that runs parallel to major league rugby such as our academy so i think uh, the level of academies has to improve um dramatically and there's got to be a, like similar to let's say europe, europe when they run their a leagues and and that sort of thing like right now the the challenge with major league rugby and with our team in particular is you, we pick the 23 guys to play on the weekend but there's no game and that's still with weather and the 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 the, the season of club rugby and all of that there's no game for a player not on the 23 to go work on the things that they need to work on and, and show that they're, they're capable of pushing for selection, unfortunately. And I think in, in the future, it's certainly not a next year next year thing, but but in the future down the line, being able to have a have an academy season run parallel where you've got that next year tier of player and you can really look to blood and develop younger players um, and, and raise the level of that or, or or raise the level um, of of that tier below, and 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 bring the development pathway up. I think we'll um, I think we'll see a dramatic rise in 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 the um, 
in the competitiveness of 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 our domestic uh, domestic national teams. So in saying that, it's like uh, with the foreign players uh, point there, it's like um, is that part of like the philosophy of how the Toronto Arrows are building the team? Because you guys have traded away two of your foreign player slots and have the least amount of foreign player slots in the league right now. And obviously, I mean, like that seems like it's kind of been like a, I guess, a bit of a philosophical way of building the squad because the Arrows have in their whole history have been very much predominantly Canadian and one of the most, I guess, domestic heavy teams in the, uh, in the league. We have, and, and, and we're lucky enough. Um, we're lucky enough to have such quality domestic players as well. And, and a fair bit of depth in certain positions from, from, from a domestic point of view. Um, we, we do have the least amount of, of foreign spots, obviously. Um, Cause I think we've got, probably the, the strongest amount of depth, um, particularly from a domestic point of view. But, but uh, you know, one area that, that we've had to obviously recruit uh, and in particular recruit foreigners in is, is uh, in, in that forward pack. And, and we've obviously need to recruit a few bigger bodies in the squad to, to, to be able to, to be a bit more competitive up front, I, I guess you could say. Um, but to answer your question there, Derek, yeah, def- definitely, definitely. I think we can rely on a little bit uh uh, a little bit less foreigners than than some other teams, just because of the strength of our domestic players within within the squad and within Canada. And uh, with your your thought on the academies, is uh, can we expect more academy games this year, or is that still maybe a couple of years out for like a full blown like maybe regular schedule for those teams? No, I think I, th- I think we can. I think we can. I think last year um, we obviously um, were lucky enough to have you know Queen's University uh, come in, Melrose come in, that sort of thing. But um, I think if, from an MLR perspective, certainly in conference, um, all all teams are pretty focused on on getting their academies up and running and, and getting them as competitive as possible. So the hope is to have. Um, kind of an in-conference uh, academy season and, and more games within the academy. I know they had them lined up last year, but but you know there were very log- various logistical issues from time to time. But but now with mm. uh, I think more time out of COVID and more planning time, uh, we're, we're going to see a few more games for for the academy for sure. Now, more rugby is always something I'm down for, so I'll be looking forward to that. Maybe I know that. Um, the arrows and I think it was their game against New York was supposed to have be a double header mm. with um, the uh, New York Academy team, which unfortunately fell through. Or I, I know that one of the games fell through, which was disappointing. But um, mm. hopefully, uh, a few double headers at York Line Stadium. Yeah, I can't argue with that. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there, Pete. Thank you so much uh, for joining us for this interview on the podcast. If any of our listeners and watchers want to listen to any more of our podcast, you can do so on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And Or if you like watching our podcast, you can do so on our YouTube channel at The Rouge Rugby. In fact, you can find us across all our social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at The Rouge Rugby. Now, Pete, you said you're not really big on social media, but if any uh, listener or watcher wants to what, go and see a Toronto Arrows game next season, where can they buy tickets from? Yeah, to buy tickets, just head over to, to our website, uh, torontoarrows.com. I think we've got a Christmas special um, on at the moment. So um, 
uh, yeah, head over to torontoarrows.com and you'll be able to get tickets to, to all our games for, for next season at, look, your, uh, sorry, your client stadium. Yeah, I, th- I can't think of any better Christmas gift than uh, getting uh, Arrows tickets for next season. Derek, where can the fine people find you online? Uh, at Brissett the Jet uh, across all social media platforms. And you can find me across all social media platforms at Hardman, spelled H4RDMAN. Well, Pete, thank you so much for joining us uh, all the way from uh, Australia. We definitely do appreciate it. Derek, thanks again for joining me for this episode of the podcast. And thanks to all our listeners and watchers for joining us this year. This is our final episode of 2022. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed following us throughout the MLR season and following Canadian rugby uh, throughout this year. We're looking to give you more interviews and more uh, Canadian rugby action coming up in 2023. So from all of us here at Rouge Rugby, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you can join us again next time.